0: be our vision this day and every day. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Judges. If you have um, a prayer slip or visitor slip, we would love to have them. And let's look at Judges chapter 2. That's where we will land uh, this morning. This time of year, my thoughts are drawn to the warnings in Scripture about a hard heart, a wayward heart, the danger of drifting spiritually in our life, I guess with coming through the holidays and with the turning of the calendar, it really is a a time to reflect on uh, what are the commitments of my life and where am I before the Lord. Moses uh, wrote one psalm attributed to him in in the book of Psalms, Psalm 90, and he said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And so life has to be lived uh, thoughtfully and purposefully and prayerfully for God's glory. But the truth of the matter is that we are easily distracted. We're prone to wander and get derailed off mission in our walk with God and what we're committed to. And so there's a danger of drifting. John MacArthur wrote, "The, the heart of the human problem has always been the problem of the human heart. And only God can do the transformative work necessary to regenerate a sinful heart to give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you um, and remove the heart of stone from your flesh, which is the promise of the new covenant in Christ. But before God changes us, we need to agree with His grim diagnosis of our hearts. I, I think it's important that we would follow David's example in Psalm 139. Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in in me, any wicked attitude, any wicked um, actions, any wicked words, any wicked motivations. Search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a wonderful prayer and should be our own. The writer of Hebrews expresses this concern as well with an impassioned plea. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you, any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. What do you mean? He's talking to believers. Uh, He wasn't taking that for granted. He was saying, take care, Uh, examine yourself, examine your heart, and lest you be in danger of falling away from the living God, exhort one another every day, as long as you call it today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we must take care against the dangers of an evil, unbelieving heart and being deceived. The world is not a friend to lead us on to God. It's not a friend to help us in this pursuit. We're always tempted to lean on our own understanding, to go solo in our decisions of life. And who in this room hasn't felt the pain of that, where I'm gonna do this, and we feel so headstrong to go in this direction, only to find later, man, this is Goshen. Uh, This is, you know, like, uh, I don't like eating pig food (laughs) In in the pigsty. Oh, thankful that I could run home to a a father who loves prodigal sons and uh, to be uh, restored by his grace. Um, So there's great danger in just going solo in the decisions of life and in the commitments of life. Not only do we feel the sinful pulls of our own heart, but we feel the cultural winds blowing these days. Where it really is more and more uh, an urgency among believers. Who am I going to live for? Where am I going to stand? What am I going to say to these continual changes on the cultural landscape? And I'll be specific on that in a few moments. Um, Where am I going to stand on these ungodly, devastating worldviews? We have experienced radical shifts in American life that have come, with, that have come at mind-numbing speed. I was reading in D.A. Carson's book entitled The Gagging of God, which he wrote about 15 years ago, and he was noting some of these changes. He said 130 years ago, uh, the New York Times had sermons of Charles Spurgeon telegraphed across the Atlantic so that they could be printed in the Monday, Monday morning edition of the New York Times. Well, I think a little has changed. Uh, A lot has changed since then. Uh, Today, the New York Times is more interested in chronicling the devices that seem to shut down churches and silence the the voice of biblical truth in our, our culture. To make sense of the wretched state of the world, we first need to see through the world's deceptive excuses for sin. Sin is not the fault of external factors. It's not based on poverty. They may exacerbate that, but, but these aren't the causes. Lack of education, upbringing, economic situation. The whole world of psychology points to uh, every conceivable external rationalization in order to get a diagnosis to justify why people continue in their sin. The problem is internal It's always been an issue of the heart in need of redemption and salvation. Proverbs 4 says in verse 23, Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart against the cynicism that seems to be the hobby of the day. Guard your heart from pride, knowing that it brings devastation. Guard your heart from rebellion against the truths of God's Word. And doing what is right in your own eyes. So for the next two Sundays, I want to camp out in the book of Judges. It's a book that is really kind of like the twilight zone of the Bible. It's a time no one says, you know, I wish I really would have lived during the time of the Judges. Nobody says that. And if you read this book, you would understand why. If you're familiar with its content. But there's a chilling phrase that is mentioned in this book that I want to bring to the forefront of your mind. And it is a statement that's found in chapter 17, verse 6, and the last verse, which I read for you a moment ago, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A timeless warning for any generation who has ears to hear. So let's begin in chapter 2, and I want to ask a series of questions. The first is, why is this R-rated book in the Bible? you read it, you'd say, you know, that's all, read it. It's a hard book about hard times. The book of Judges is difficult to handle. Um, The heroes of the book are blurred. That's a hero. You read about Samson, it's like, man, he wouldn't have been in my hall of faith. (laughs) He was a wreck. But he was used by God. And nevertheless, with all of his weaknesses, that should give some sense of encouragement that... He's mentioned in Hebrews 11. Jephthah's vow and Judges 11 is a bizarre passage to be sure. Then Gideon seems to be such a coward, I wouldn't hold him up either. And so major portions um, are given. It's an uneven book. Major portions are given to Gideon and Samson. Uh, An entire chapter is given to Abimelech, who really is called an anti-judge because he was so evil. Um, it, it's a it's a violent book. It's a book that describes mutilation and horrific sexual assault, shocking behavior. If we were going to rate the content of the book, it would be R. Michael Wilcox, Michael Wilcox, and his commentary on judges says, "Can this be right?" The book is. Neglected, except for maybe the sanitized version that you might hear in Sunday school. So why this book? No author is named in the book, but Jewish tradition really leans strongly towards Samuel. And it's a transitional book. Judges spans about 350 years from the conquest of Joshua, which ends well, Joshua is commanded by God, be strong and very courageous, Joshua, and let this book of the law not depart from your mouth. And Joshua went forward in faith, and God brought victory as they entered into the promised land after years of wandering in the wilderness. And Joshua, at the end of his life, says to the people of God, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And... We read as in the closing of Joshua that all the good promises of God were kept. That God was with them. And then comes the book of the Judges. And we read that in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, that all that generation, all the generation of Joshua, were gathered to their fathers. They died. And so, you know, that I think that's helpful in reading our Bible. Okay, there's a generation that has gone. What about me and my life? What about us and our generation? We have a church that's five generations in span. What about our generation? Which way are we going to go? Are we going to follow in the paths of biblical truth, declaring our allegiance to Jesus Christ, who will come to judge the living and the dead? Or will we go by the way of those generations who forgot the Lord and neglected his commands. It says here in verse 10 and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. How could that be? They had seen God's power through Joshua, and one generation removed. Maybe you, we could say, well, you know, they didn't use uh, uh, proper catechisms, their ministries were flawed. Maybe so. We're always being reformed. <laughs> We're always being conformed into the image of Christ. We always want to do things better. But there's, a, there's an element, a major element of God's sovereignty in all of this. But, could, but shouldn't it be the cry of God's people, Lord, use us. Use us in a world that has forgotten you. Help us to be salt and light. In our connect group this morning, someone you made reference to God calling Israel, you will be my peculiar people. There should be a uniqueness about our witness in this world and our commitments in this world that others would know that we are followers of Him. They didn't know the Lord, it says in Judges 2, verse 10, or the work that He had done for Israel. They had taken the law of God and thrown it away. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy, by the way. Deutero means two, nomos means law, the second telling of the law... Moses went over it, reiterated it again. Do not depart from this. In every instance where you see the waywardness of God's people under the old covenant, it is because they have done that. And I would say the same is true for those under the new covenant. Jesus said in his last prayer, Father, sanctify them um, by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we turn to it today. In Joshua, the people were obedient to God in conquering the land, and judges, they were disobedient, idolatrous, and often defeated. And so the book begins with the opening days of Joshua, and it, it continues on to a series of judges, seven distinct cycles of Israel drifting and drifting and drifting, and going through this same death spiral, and every judge seems to be a disappointment, some give deliverance for sure. The focus should be on God, but every judge begs for a greater judge. And that greater judge is Jesus Christ. God himself is the higher judge. Judges 11 verse 27. And basically the reason that God's people went into decline and defeat was uh, their disobedience to, to God's command to eradicate the land, to drive out the Canaanites, which is the only time that command was given in redemptive history. No nation, no geopolitical claim can ever use God as reason for uh, removing um, uh, inhabitants. But that was given to Israel with regard to the land of Canaan. It was his covenant promises. Idolatry was another reason. Intermar- intermarriage with wicked people. Um, not following the judge's leadership, turning away from God after the death of the judges. And so you have the same cycle all again. Everyone doing right, what is right in their own eyes. Let's, let's ask a next. So, why is this hard rated book in our Bible? To remind us of the danger of going rogue with God and calling us back to simple obedience and, to his word. The second question, what is the message for God's people then and now? And I want to look at verses 6 through 15, which describes uh, this sad situation. We read a description that uh, there's a generational break and a painful cycle of sin from Judges 3 to... To Judges 16, you see the cycle where God raises up these judges to bring a deliverance. And when I mention, or when I say judges, I'm not referring to people in black robes. Uh, they, they were really saviors, they were really deliverers. That's the idea behind it. And so what we see is a picture of, of God's long suffering. I'm, I'm reminded in, in Romans 2, verse 4, that it's the patience of God, the long suffering of God, that brings us to repentance on display in Scripture is a long-suffering God, even when we're disobedient to Him. And here we find in Judges this cycle. Falling away from God. Embracing the idolatry of the day. Apostasy is another word. It means to fall away from God and to live a sinful life. You, and then God would raise up deliverers as a judgment, or not deliverers, rather, uh, 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 oppressors, would bring oppressors upon Israel to bring them into bondage. There's a scene where the Midianites would come in after Israel had worked so hard to plant and to cultivate and to grow crops to live by, and the Midianites would come in and just take it all away. It was a judgment for their disobedience. And so bondage and servitude came. And then they began to cry out to the Lord like Israel of old in the Exodus. Lord, how long do we have to make these bricks? This is horrible. And heaven said, yeah, it is when you depart from me. And God's heart was moved by their cries and brought a deliverer to lead them. And so, you know, I think we can relate in a small way, to God's patience, parents, uh, yeah, and parenting, um, you know, the frustration that comes with repeated commands and repeated cycles of things. I read something recently uh, about uh, frustrations in parenthood when you tell your child, uh, who should know better, 17 times now, don't leave your socks in front of the bathroom. Your socks smell. Nobody else wants to touch them. We want you to put them right side out and put them in the laundry room. And the next day, the cycle repeats. And what I see on display here in Judges and what we have known through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life is God's long suffering towards us. And that In Christ, He has given us the Holy Spirit that seals us for the day of redemption and conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the message for God's people then and now. You're never wrong when you turn to the Lord. How long is it going to take for you to turn to Christ? How long is it going to take for you to surrender to Him and live for Him? How long are you going to be satisfied in the far country? May you turn to Him now right now and live for him let's look to a third question what does it mean to do what is right in your own eyes I want to kind of unpack that a little bit the book of Judges employs really a chilling phrase they did what was right in their own eyes we know what that's like in family life when someone wants to do what's right in their own eyes over against the authority structures of the family it's not pleasant um, God's people had forsaken His law and they were in their covenant with Him and did whatever they wanted to do to fulfill their s- sinful desires. They embraced the idolatry of the day. And, you know, when I think about this, we're, we're seeing in our day the consequences of a society doing what's right in their own eyes and radical displays, flagrant demonstrations of disobedience and rebellion to God. This whole transgenderism question is just insane we are going to um, ha- have a special treatment of that this spring a special s- uh, session for, for all the connect groups wanting to equip the church and inform the church on what's ac- actually happening but you, th- this is a reprobate mind taken to it, it, the extreme it's a it's a violation of god's creative purposes which is established in creation it's why we establish things like every year the year of the Bible and calling us to, to understand God's Word and to cherish it in our generation. And so many things. Um, this month we're reminded again of the anniversary of, of the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. 60 million babies have been aborted in America roughly since that time. Um, It's really a huge issue on how you view life and when life begins. And recently we've seen demonstrations in Congress. Let's just say what it is, if you'd allow me to quote Owen Strand. Christian, you must understand how wicked it is for 210 members of one political party to vote against the Born Alive Protection Act. You must see that you cannot be neither left nor right. You must understand how anti-human and pro-death leftism has become. Many matters of politics are not cut and dry. You know we're not a political body here at all. We don't promote any political um, agendas or parties, certainly. And there are disagreements among believers on many aspects of policy and politics. They, they require much wisdom and prudence. And, but abortion is moral barbarism. Abortion is towering evil. Abortion invites and also is the uh, proleptic wrath of God unleashed on a people. God help us. And not only that, there's a new generation and in the, in the worldviews collide a new generation of Western leadership that believes that the institutions that bore this country, whether it be the influence of Christianity in particular, um, solid government, that, that believes that the institutions that established this country are evil from root to stem, and the way you show virtue that you are indeed good is by breaking those institutions. Without any other sense of morality and decency, and everything you do is justified by your name for "quote unquote" freedom. This self-centered narcissism, and not only that, by taking stands with some of the drastic changes that have occurred in the last twenty-five years, and particularly in the last decade, the, the culture is far more influential than the Word of God in people's thinking. <clears throat> Well, that's not unusual. That's happened all through history. But it should ramp up within us a desire, Lord, we want to be a witness. We want to stand on truth. We don't want to be blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. We want you to be glorified in our generation. Franklin Graham mentioned recently something that's been in the news. Amy Grant has been um, in the Christian music realm for 40 years probably. And she announced that she and her husband, Vince Gill, are going to host the same-sex wedding on their farm for their niece. And Amy said that Jesus narrowed it down to two things, love God and love others. And Graham went on to say, yes, love God and love others, but if we love God, we will seek to obey his word that's the dichotomy the false dichotomy i love god but i am going to sever myself from the clear revelation of what he said in his word jesus told us that if we love that if we love him we'll keep his commandments god defines what sin is not us and is clear his word is clear that homosexuality is a sin so is adultery so is fornication So so is theft and murder. We're just wanting to say what God says about it. For me, loving others also includes caring about their soul where they will spend eternity. It means loving them enough to tell them the truth. Now, let me just take a sidebar here and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and would point you there because this isn't isn't a situation where we're, um, you know, that not much is at stake. Uh, eternity's at stake. The destiny of one's soul is at, at stake. And I'm thinking of Paul's statement to the Corinthians. This is one of a number. We could look at Romans 1. We could look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. But let's look here at 1 Corinthians 6, picking up in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So once again, the Bible divides... Um, humanity into two groups, the righteous and the unrighteous. What makes one righteous? Well, not self-righteousness. Our righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. So unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those without Christ will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, Nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't inherit it. Is this blowing smoke in our face? Is this are are these empty words? They don't go. These are behaviors. All of them are behaviors that represent those who do not know Christ or the righteousness of God and have not been born again by His salvation. They won't inherit it. They're not going. They're under judgment. The wrath of God abides on them. Which was true of us before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, when we talk about issues like this, for us it's the issue of the truth. So Amy Grant's hosting this wedding, showing an act of love in her mind but really is promoting something that is contrary to God's word and his way and all of us are going to have to make decisions some of you are already having to deal with decisions right now on the forefront am i going to participate in this or not we've we've had to make decisions concerning the usage of this building because of this issue you know wanting to be a host and wanting to serve the community only to be thrust upon having to deal with issues that there's no way to enforce And so there's a stewardship of what God's given to us. Jesus said, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. I've chosen you out of the world, and the world hates you. So we shouldn't be dismayed that if we're the minority standing for truth, that that's not going to bring hugs or appreciation. In Jude 3, one, there's only one chapter. Verse 3, it says, Beloved, although I was eager to come to you, I, I found it necessary to write to you, to, to, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That we are called to contend for the faith. And one thing is for sure, if God's people are not contending for the faith, it's lost. And by faith, it's referring to the whole body of truth that God has given to us in His Word, and, uh, which includes certainly His salvation and more. We're to contend for it. If it's not being contended for, it's being lost. One other question. Where does such a mindset lead? Now, there's inter- it's interesting. It, it, that phrase... People did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's mentioned twice in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, and the last verse of Judges, which we read earlier. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So sandwiched between Judges 17 and Judges 21 uh, is a sordid uh, uh, series of stories to show how out of control Israel had become with no sense. Of loyalty to the Lord or to each other. There's the, there's a story of a Levite and his concubine, and how a mob uh, uh, takes her and abuses her and sexually assaults her, and that brings about her death. Her body is dismembered and sent to the twelve tribes of Israel and the people finally are shaken out of their stupor. What is going on down in Benjamin? We've got this arm in the mail, which led to a civil war and a disaster. And I want you to notice this last section. Those chapters 17 through 21 contain twisted a, 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 a twisted, wicked picture of rebellion and idolatry and the violation of God's word, sexual assault and civil war. Other than that, it was wonderful. Well, what does it look like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes? Just like we're seeing every day in our culture. Barry Webb, who wrote an insightful commentary on judges, said, It's not a a community of glorious freedom, is it? And certainly not one of love. It's a chaotic and cruel society in which everything that is worst in human nature comes to the forefront, where the institutions that should give order and deliver justice fail, where everyone suffers and women in particular are abused. Great summary of judges in a world that does what is right in their own eyes. If it can happen to Israel with all their experiences, with all their glorious experiences of God parting seas and giving to them His Word and providing manna for 40 years and on and on it goes, we shouldn't be surprised if it's happening around us. But it closes with a word of hope. So... You know, I I don't want you to leave here today, and I often feel this way, where we talk about things in our culture and you leave here seething with hatred towards the culture. That's not the point. I I only offer this up to, to show the distinction that if I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, I cannot be embracing these messages in this life. The world behind me, the cross before me, so don't leave here seething with rage at the culture. Maybe, maybe seething with rage toward, toward me, but no, I don't want that either. So what I'm wanting us to do is to say, hey, look, it's, it's a warfare. We got a call on our life. That means we're called to believe certain things and to contend for them. And so it, I want you to see in Judges 21... How it ends with hope, it mentions in verse 23 that after all the chaos and moral decline, the book of Judges does end with a word of hope. It ends with returning and rebuilding and recovery. It says in the last part of verse 23, they, Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And something about an inheritance that connects us with our past, that gives hope for the future to build. So there is hope. Even when you're living in the dark days of the judges, or whatever period of history, there's always hope in the Lord. When it comes to who you're going to live for. When it comes to who you're going to follow. When it comes to who's going to govern your heart. Oh, may it be the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a wonderful Savior and an awesome God. With every judge in the book of Judges. With every human leader. um, There may be temporary blessing. There may be temporary deliverance. But there's always a longing for something better isn't there something stronger something more powerful something more durable Jesus Christ is the perfect judge and he will return he's coming back he will return and the Bible says that he will judge the living and the dead and his judgment will be perfect and his reign will be permanent and he will wipe the tears away from the eyes of his people those who find refuge and trust in Him. We see His kingdom through the eyes of faith. He's reigning now. He's come now. And one day our faith will be sight. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to Him, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Would you listen to his voice this morning? Would you hear the truth of what God has said through Jesus Christ? Instead of doing what's right in your own eyes, how, how well has that gone for you? I mean, honestly. If you're in church and you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm here today because I've been doing what's right in my eyes all my life. And it's, it's like a hundred miles of bad road. I'm sick of doing it my way. That's the hope of the gospel. What do I need to do? Oh, it's not complicated. It involves everything, but it's not complicated. You turn from trusting in yourself to say, Lord, I trust in you alone. I acknowledge my failures, my sins, my transgressions, I own them all, Lord. You know all about them. I feel that—that's the weight I'm feeling—is that you know all about me, and I'm—I'm I'm exposed. I'm a sinner. I've broken your laws. I've violated my conscience. I'm a troubled person. I'm lost. And you're acknowledging that. You're owning that. You're not wanting a little psychological tweak, a little boost in your step to kind of lead you out of here to continue living for yourself. You're wanting an encounter with the living God that takes you to the foot of the cross where you acknowledge your sin and you understand that it was your sin that put Him on the cross. Where His dying prayer was that you would go and sin no more. Well, right, I'll accept all that. What do I need to do now? You need to trust Him. Personally. You need to believe on Him. You need to call out to Him right now. Lord, I need you to come into my life. Please come into my life. Save me from my sin and be the Lord of my life. I follow you. I follow you. I'm sick of living based upon what's right in my own eyes. Would you bow with me in prayer? Maybe the Lord is leading you to publicly acknowledge your salvation. To be united with a local church like this one. And to be set free by the life-changing message of Christ. Father, we pray in these closing moments as we seek to live for you in this world that you would move in the closing minutes of this service that you would be glorified in our life and that the departure today of this church into the highways and hedges of this city would bear fruit would bear fruit for your name. Oh Lord, may we close this time in concentration and it's surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.